This is an interview with Mr. Ted Sturmdahl, pilot of the B-70 and also the B-1, recorded at Mojave, California, on Wednesday, the 16th of May, 79. That's the usual thing. You know, I know the 747 flight decks are very small. cramped. And of course that's done for a purpose. What, to keep the profile now? No. To keep the extra crew members and FAA observers out of the cockpit. Oh, I see. Sure, the more seats put in there, the FAA yeah. will just fill yeah, them up. Crowds with, in, yeah. yeah. With, uh, so the, moment, the airlines are very reluctant to accommodate any more uh, seats than yeah. uh, they feel are absolute, absolutely essential to operate the airplane. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me how you came to be involved on the, on the B-70 program? Yes, I had spent uh, a little over four years at Edwards in bomber flight test. I've been spending uh, most of that time in 19... 61 and 62 on that then very new airplane called the B-52 uh, and the last models of the B-52 so uh, I guess you'd say the last couple of years there 61 62 I spent almost uh, exclusively to flight testing the, the H model um, so I knew all the people Edwards and they knew me having been assigned there in-flight test. Uh, I then went off to a special project at General Dynamics Fort Worth uh, flying the extended wing B-57, the F model. And uh, as that program was drawing to a close, uh, it just coincided with uh, a transition in the B-70 program from a joint Rockwell Air Force program to a joint Air Force NASA research program. By then, the program had taken a different turn. All the contractual uh, uh, demonstrations required of Rockwell, or then North America, had been met. Uh, clearly, the B-70 was not going to go into production. I think that was one of the smarter decisions, quite by accident. I think it was uh, probably made for the wrong, the right decision was made for the wrong reason. Uh, yes, I want to come to that in a, in a moment. And uh, anyway, they were transitioning into the NASA program, and that meant that the two Rockwell North American pilots, uh, Al White and Van Shepard, were no longer be flying the airplane. Uh, the, the Air Force had one pilot, really two, uh, Joe Cotton and Fitz Fulton. You must have talked to Fitz Fulton out at NASA. No, I haven't. I'm hoping to see him later on today. Uh, the uh, uh, Fitz, right about that same time frame, uh, was chief of bomber flight test at Edwards. And uh, I had worked for him in the time that I was. Sorry, who was chief of Palmer Flight? Fitzful. Fitzful. Uh, at this particular point in time, and uh, uh, 
and I think I knew Fitz very well, and he knew me, and flown with me indeed on the B-52 program. Uh, when uh, we had the two B-70s still flying, and Fitz, who can tell you for probably better reasons than I, uh, the detail, but it rec I recollect something that he was going to be reassigned from Edwards, just about the time this program was going to transition from from the contractor Air Force to Air Force NASA. And he elected to retire out of the Air Force and go to work for NASA to continue flying the B-70. So he obviously became the, the most qualified NASA pilot. And then they were to bring on two other NASA pilots, Joe Walker and uh, Don Malik, who's also, you can see them both today if you're out there. Um, and the Air Force was going to bring on then two new pilots. One was already at Edwards then, Carl Cross, and uh, I had talked to Fitz about returning to Edwards upon completing my tour uh, down there at uh, Fort Worth. Fortunately for me, he saw fit to bring me back into the program as one of the other B-70 pilots. Now, between the time that decision was made and the time I actually got there in September of 1976, we had that tragic accident with a mid-air collision between the 104 and the number 2 B-70, which happened in June of 66. And I reported in back to Edwards in September of course, in that accident, we lost both Joe Walker and Carl Cross. So when I got there... They were both the pilots involved. Well, one was in the 104, wasn't he? Walker was in the 104. Carl Cross was on his very first flight in the B-70. And Al White was flying, I guess, the last flight he ever made in it, as part of the contractor participation, was flying the B-70. And uh, they had that mid-air collision. Mm -hmm. uh, Did they find out like why Carl Cross couldn't get out? Well, uh, I don't know that anybody has really said, as an established uh, and accepted fact, that this you know that as to what happened. But I think that a couple of things were clearly stated. One, that Carl never actuated the ejection system. Uh, the first step of the encapsulated ejection system was to retract the seat back into the capsule and the doors automatically slam closed. Uh, I'm quite certain that if I recall it correctly, Carl never actuated the retraction. There was a seat, but at one time it was still in the extended position, and the ballistics hadn't been fired. Uh, and I believe that when both vertical tails of the B-70 were taken off by the 104 collision, a subsequent maneuver, which was a rolling uh, oscillation entry into a, a spin with rather high rotation rates, uh, wouldn't, I think Al White 
who did get out and was trying to get Carl to do something and then stayed as long as he could before he felt that he'd become himself incapacitated because of the transverse G's they were building up. So I think you could build a pretty good case for, for can, Carla. Yeah, could, could we get on a, onto the sort of positive side of it now? Because obviously I don't want to dwell on the unhappy side. Yeah. Um, can you sort of give me an idea of what kind of a quantum step it was for you coming off B-57s, uh, B-52s, onto something that was operating in a totally different flight regime? Well, I, of course, had some supersonic experience having some time in the F-104 and the F-106. Uh, so the speed or flight regime didn't... Uh, uh, affect me with, with change quite as dramatically as the change in size of the aircraft. You'd think a B-52 is a pretty big airplane, but you know, to me, going from a 52 to a B-70 was a big step. Um, now, you, you make that transition, as all the B-70 pilots did, by going to the B-58. And uh, I entered the program, I think, as I told you, in 1966. And it was probably almost a year later, in 67, before I got my first flight in a B-70. I might add that with Joe Cotton and Fitz Fulton as the primary B-70 pilots, uh, the backups, if you want to call Don Malik and myself, are in poor position waiting for one of those guys to get out of a seat. And if you want to mention to them that I accused both Joe and Fitz of being somewhat of a time hog, be my guest, because I said it to their face many times, jokingly, because I, you know, I, was, I was just thrilled and flattered to even have been accepted into the program. point was that you know, I had a chance to accompany the B-70, flying the B-58 and occasionally the 104, but mostly the B-58 on chase missions, so that you know, going through all the school, the ground school, participating in numerous engine runs and such, uh, uh, I think I you know, felt as well prepared as you could be. Um, you got some Mark III time in it, did you? Nope. Uh, the B-70 flew Mach 3, to my knowledge, only twice in its whole career. Uh, once, the first time it did it, and then the one time that it did it again, or the second time that it did it to demonstrate the contractual requirement of flying at Mach 3 for uh, 30 minutes. I think it actually flew 31 or 32. And that all happened well before I got in the program. I think the highest Mach number that I got to was 2.8 something over 27, between 27 and 28. Uh, once you get above Mach 2, to me, Mach 2.2 and there and above, uh, you, there's no difference. Can you describe um, a typical flight profile from, from takeoff to climb to speed runs yeah. and the sort of things you did when you use reheat, when you drop the, the wing tips and so on? I have my notes, and I don't think... Yeah, yeah. I've even got some B-70 flight reports that I wrote. Uh. But a typical flight regime would be to uh, take off out of Edwards, and join up with the chase, which is already airborne. Uh, of course, all takeoffs were full, as you call it, reheat, mm -hmm. 
and I'll use the term afterburn. Afterburn, yeah. Um, takeoff weights were typically uh, 540 to 550,000 pounds. And um, if my memory is correct, we stayed in reheat or afterburner. Uh, or if we did come out, it was just for a short period of time after getting the airplane cleaned up uh, and get all our, our checks completed that we had to do uh, after takeoff. Climbing generally up to uh, tropopause uh, temperatures, which generally occurred around over 35, 38,000 feet in this latitude. Uh, accelerating out to climb speed, which in the process of doing it at eight tenths Mach number thereabouts, why just before we got there we put the wings to half full, which is 25 degrees down. Uh, we'd go to uh, uh, continue our climbing on, on, on subsonic climb speed to a point where even in full afterburner the climb speed was drop, the climb rate was dropping off. And then nose over and go down to an altitude of the low 30s. And in that slight descent, accelerate into supersonic conditions. I think we could probably have brute forced our way through it. When I was flying the airplane, the engines had been derated from their 30,000 pounds. I think they were, at that time they were putting out around 26 or 27,000 pounds. This was without afterburner. With afterburner. Oh, with afterburner. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. So we'd uh, go supersonic at about one four Mach, the wings would go full down, uh, and accelerate on out level to a supersonic climb speed, which I recall is around 585 knots, something like that, and hold that 585 knots and climb at it until reaching some Mach number. But of course, as you continue to climb at that speed, the Mach number was increasing rapidly. And uh, then we'd pick up some supersonic climb Mach number, and I can't recall, like 2 2 or sort of 2, something like that. Climb on up to our intended work altitude. All this while we'd be heading north up past these Sierra Nevada mountains, as you see right out here, right up this valley. And uh, climb to our cruise altitude at the cruise Mach number that we wanted to work at. Where we'd be generally, when I was on the program, we were doing work with inlets, uh, work with supersonic drag, like getting temperature measurements and, uh, on different and uh, microphonic and temperature sensors all over the the airplane to measure boundary layer thicknesses, uh, and we'd, uh, of course, by you know, frequently we just leave the B-58 or anything else behind because it's limited at 2 or 2.1. And uh, head on up, continue accelerating and climbing, working north until somewhere around Idaho, make a sort of a looping turn back to the south, coming down through Nevada. You were flying along a so-called boom corridor, were you? Because yes, you were trailing right a shockwave. Oh, yeah, it was yeah. A, so if you looked at the track, uh, 
typically it would go up. Uh, there's the typical one. Taking off Edwards, Coaldale, Battle Mountain, uh, Boise. Uh, you can see what we had planned to fly, and we actually got far north on that one. It was, uh, yeah, it was pretty far in Pocatello, Idaho, and back down Bonneville Salt Flats, Salt Lake being way over there, Mormon Mesa, Las Vegas here. Trying to miss Las Vegas, although we were told that nobody would notice. Then, as we turned westbound, starting a, a descent and deceleration to subsonic uh, conditions, and then you know, whatever it would feel. Now that would uh, yeah. a flight profile like that would be uh, uh, maximum Mach number 2.55 on that particular flight, mm -hmm. 67,000 feet, uh, hour and 54 minutes. Was there a noticeable effect when you when you drop the wingtips? In trim change or in, in not that I can recall of any significance. Mm. Uh, as you were accelerating, the airplane improved its directional stability, which I thought was always at its weakest with the wings undrooped. Mm. So anyway, I don't know what that an that answers your question. Uh, mm. We did a lot of not a lot of work, but uh, some of the less interesting from the uh, standpoint of. Uh, a casual observer, but equally interesting as the supersonic work mm. to the pilot was uh, looking at uh, the handling qualities at the low speeds, i.e. the landing configuration of a large airplane to see what is acceptable uh, since it's assumed that supersonic transports such as the Concorde and others will be Delta. And Deltas have some rather unique Characteristics which are compensated for by in the Concorde, for instance, by flying fast but drooping the nose, as you know. So we looked at you know a lot of different aspects and, and even some changes in configuration. And, and was it was it easy to handle at low speeds? No. No. Uh, I think the airplane was uh, was a handful. Uh, it wasn't particularly difficult. Uh, but the workload was high, especially in turbulence. Uh, in fact, uh, the most disconcerting aspect that I can recall uh, in the flying the B-70 was approaching to land at Edwards in a gusty or crosswind condition, and where the aircraft responded uh, perhaps its total movement as measured at the center of gravity might be small in a lateral directional oscillation uh, sitting some well over 100 feet out in a long tube at the front end of that uh, you'd sit the see the runway just going look to you from one side to the other and you're just kind of hoping that if you when you when you and the runway coincided you'd somewhere be in the middle of that oscillation because it looked to you like you were never like the chances were poor as you're ever going to get it on that runway turned out that you know, the airplane really wasn't moving that much, it was, but it was disconcerting. And uh, well, What sort of typical speed did you flare at? Well, if I recall, we approached, boy, going back a few years, <laughs> and my recollection is typically 210, mm. uh, something like that, and that our touchdown speeds uh, would be, um, you know, touchdown speeds would be 
190 to, to something like that. Um, okay, touchdown. Pro speed, here's typical flight testing. Pro speed used was 210 knots. The computed flare speed was 190 knots. Did it have all, all the characteristics of a delta? In other words, no sharp stall, just a, a sink rate that you could virtually lower it onto the ground at? Or? Uh, well, because the airplane was never stalled. Uh, and yes, the, all Not the, even at altitude. <laughs> no. This is a case of many deltas. That would have been the last flight that particular vehicle would have made. Uh, even with a CG well forward? Yeah. But, uh, because, as you know, deltas don't typically stall, and they yeah. just start generating until you get them to, you can get them to a point where they depart control of flight. Mm. And that's generally a post-stall gyration, and frequently resulting in a spin, and that's not the, any particularly productive maneuver for a B-70. Mm. 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 You, you approach typic, in a typical delta fashion, where you're on the back side of the power curve, mm. and where you controlled your airspeed with pitch attitude and your descent rate with power. The airplane was had a very pronounced ground effect, and I thought it very easy to get on the runway. Just that, uh, because of the structural motion of the uh, motions of the aircraft, and it's what I thought very, well, I won't say very weak, less than satisfactory uh, stability, lateral directional st and stability in turbulence and gusty winds uh, conditions as you approach into the surface. I just thought that the airplane was uh, not too satisfactory, and. Yeah, as I said, the pilot workload was quite high. You didn't have any uh, ride damping um, ability Sorry. like the B-1 had? Is it the same system? Uh, no, Canards? no, no. The canards uh, actually caused a great deal of a problem because you got lifting surfaces right there next to the pilot. And as you know, they were flapped for the landing and that just aggravated that, that particular aspect. Where I'm sure they were there for performance. They didn't, uh, they didn't help the pilot controllability or ride qualities at all. Now, the B-70 was getting into a program called ILAF, initials, an acronym ILAF, and uh, uh, it was you know, load alleviation. I, I, I have to go back and dig through my notes to find out what, uh, what the acronym formally stood for. But it was one of the first Attempt, certainly the first attempt in an aircraft approaching that size. Uh, no, I'll correct that because the B-52 was doing some work on load alleviation at that time. Uh, but certainly in a supersonic airplane, it was the first attempt. Uh, again, I think the main thrust of that, of that program was load alleviation and not necessarily ride control. That was true in the B-1 as well. Uh, uh, can you be a bit more spe yeah. specific on load alleviation? Certainly. Yeah. Uh, big airplanes tend to wear out when they're flown in a high-speed, high-dynamic-pressure environment due to fatigue. If I can reduce the d fatigue damage rate, as it's called, by one-half, I'll extend the life double one. That was the main approach. And any, uh, uh, any benefit derived in a better ride control is it's nice, but it isn't the primary objective. Uh, in the B-1, the improvement in ride control is dramatic.
and you turned on what we call the uh, uh, structural mode control system, which are those canards, those small canard surfaces. The canards here in the, on the B-70 were, you know, were never put in for that purpose. And ILAF was a system of using all of the flight control systems to, with high rate gains to fight, dampen, if you will, the structural modes. Now, it was a radical change in, in, in thinking, i.e. to use aerodynamic flight controls to contain structural modes. Oh, I understand that it is a technology that was developed in the, in the large missiles, like in ICBMs. And, uh, some of our first attempts with ILAF aggravated, got in phase with some of the structural motions. Typical kind of growing pains you get into. We were just, uh, I think, starting to make some real headway during that last year. I think our program actually got underway in September of 68 when they canceled the program in December. The whole B-70 program. And that was a tragedy. We're going to pay in spades to relearn the technology that could have been gained with all the sunk costs of the B-70 sitting yeah. right there. Yeah. That was a tragedy. Yeah, our short-sighted people, both in the military, NASA, the government. The show was on the road. It wasn't, wouldn't cost it much, much oh, more to keep it here. Yeah, it was pittance compared to what was in it. And what we could have learned, yeah. I think, would have had applications for years to come. I saw their Heat with Speed film down at Rockwell's the other day. They, they made a movie on, on how they tested the structures to heat yeah. and develop the honeycomb. Oh, it was fascinating. Um, you mentioned uh, a little while back about uh, intake configuration. That had, very, that had doors and so on that moved around according to well, had, position and so yeah, on. It had bypass doors. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll put it this way. We had ramps that moved and throats that moved. And the only two purposes, or single purpose of those two variable geometries were to control the position of the shock wave, to actually bring the shock wave into the inlet and position it at the throat of the inlet, uh, which gave us very high compression ratios within the inlet. I think theoretically they're up to 27 to 1, something like that. Which says really, you can operate almost at those speeds, super, you know, Mach 3, you can operate the aircraft as a ramjet, yeah. and the engine's really more trouble than it's worth, probably. It typically, I think, had a 7 or 8 to 1 compression ratio in the engine. But when you're ramming through the air at that speed, you can still only put air through the engine at the rate that it'll accept. And you've got to get rid of all that extra speed air that comes into the inlet and gets compressed downstream of the uh, shockwave. So the bypass door is then open right in front of the face of the engine to get dump overboard all that air. That was an automatic system on airplane number two, the one that was lost in mid-air collision. It was, uh, I don't think, ever satisfactorily operated uh, automatically on airplane one. And indeed, between managing the fuel system and controlling the inlets manually, where you really transition all, all of those manually, uh, and it constantly varied across the Mach range. Because if you, if you were flying this, this plane now, developing it now, presumably the computer technology you oh. have at the B-1 would have taken the workload. The, the whole thing. 
the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. And in fact, that computer technology was went into the B-1. The first B-1s, <clears throat> the prototype's flying right now, have that automatic in them. And, and it works, you know, reasonably well. Now, Doug Benefield showed me all over the, um, I think it was the Ship 3 yesterday, down at Edwards. It never had the inlets. Yeah. Ship 3 didn't? No. No, no. 1 and 2 were the only ones that had the mm. uh, movable inlets mm. uh, for high speed, that is, you know, Mach 2 flight. Mm. Can you tell me, I was looking at, at, at um, the one up at uh, Wright-Patterson, the elevons were in the form mm -hmm. of fingers. Um, what was the reason for that, and how did they function? They functioned as a single unit. But you split it up, <coughs> and you put two hydraulic rams on each one, and you size each one to the control power that one of them will handle. In other words, the air loads dictate the size of each of those elements of the elevons. And each one of those elevons then has its own set of hydraulically powered actuators. So it's really to, to reduce the bending moment you would have had on a full, fully continuous eleven. Oh, and the air loads that have been tremendous. You know, you can imagine the, the, the uh, hinge moments you'd have to contend with. What sort of cue would you be hitting round about Mark three? Well, airplanes flying better than 600 knots indicated. At those altitudes, you can imagine what dynamic pressure is. Yeah. Uh, maybe, again, I've got something in here. I don't yeah. know. But uh, you know, 70,000 feet and 600 yeah. knots is a, is a real chunk of uh, Q. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you're flying a 2.55 Mach at 70,000 feet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can pretty well figure that out. Yeah. Well, sir, I know you didn't actually get up to Mark three, but... Uh, with the pilots who did, did they experience any feeling that somehow they'd reached any limit? I don't think so. Stability and I doubt it. Mm. It's kind of hard to convince yourself of that when you've got an X-15 flying mm. concurrently out to Mach 6. Mm. I never heard anybody feel it. I think they felt this airplane clearly. It yeah. was the limit for this airframe, but if you speaking in a general sense, no, I don't think they were. Mm. Now, I was talking to Pete Knight the other day, and he said definitely around about Mark 6, 6, 5, he was feeling that uh, he could very easily fall off the tightrope and get himself into all sorts of troubles. Uh, Where'd you see Pete? Is he still up at Yes, uh, he's, he's at Wright-Patterson, right yes, yes. The other thing that struck me looking at that plane, the two, the two fins are secured by tie bars. Is that purely for exhibition purposes? Yes. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think, it didn't look very aerodynamic to me. No, they weren't there. <laughs> Yeah, what about the control systems? They were fully, fully powered, were they? Oh, yes. Mm. They had to be. Mm. With redundant, all kinds of redundancy. And, of course, in those days, you didn't have a sort of fly-by-wire um, alternative like you got in the B-1. Mm -hmm. No, but uh, I think it becomes an almost academic question. Mm. When you're flying in regimes like Mach 2 and above, with control systems as exist on airplanes like the B-1, the F-111, the B-70. Uh, you're flying on a fly-by-wire system. You have, you have a mechanical system, hydro-mechanical system to fall back on, but you're really dependent upon all of the electronic dampers, command augmentations, stability augmentations. The, the, the essence 
of a fiber wire system to remain operational. Without that, you only got one choice, that's try to keep the airplane right side up and point it frontwards first while you get slowed down. Now, it may be an overstatement, but you'd never have a mission capability to do anything. I don't think any supersonic transport would be flying in Mach 2 or 3 without full mm. augmentation. That's why they have quadruply redundant systems like we did in the B-1. Concorde's triply redundant. Yeah. Um, what no, sort quadruply, I beg your pardon. Quadruply, yeah. What sort of endurance um, will that aircraft have had? I mean, it's, from what you're telling me, it, it strikes me that uh, the greater part of the mission was flown with afterburners. Mm -hmm. Now, that's uh, not too good for fuel consumption, is it? Well, if the plane had been operational, I mean, would it have been a strategic well, bomber without in-flight refueling? Mm, probably. Mm. I think you'd defeat the whole purpose. One, the airplane, I'm sure, had growth capability. We, we had fuel tanks that weren't even being used. We were using them to, to you know, put other instrumentation in and things like that. Well, the B-70 did not have the range that it was supposed to have by a wide margin. Its supersonic drag turned out to be much higher than ever calculated, as is the case with a lot of supersonic aircraft. I'm sure Concorde learned much from what we learned on the B-70. At least God knows we had enough of them over here. Yeah, picking our brains. And there was certainly a profile available if you built a supersonic bomber of this type to go out a certain range. Certainly no tanker is going to stay with you. Uh, so you go out subsonically to a certain point, like 0.8 Mach, and then refuel the airplane to its maximum weight. And then, you know... Dash. Dash. Mm -hmm. You know, accelerate and climb. Uh, I made the statement to you on the phone, and I'd like to clarify it, because I feel rather strongly about it today when I said I think the airplane was canceled for, as a strategic bomber. I believe it was, uh, it was a proper decision, but I feel for the wrong reasons. Uh, ostensibly, Mr. McNamara canceled the aircraft because he was convinced that a manned bomber would, was doomed the service-to-air missile would make it uh, uh, obsolete and that uh, it couldn't survive in the environment. I think that the aircraft like SR-71s have proven the fallacy of that conviction. I think for many more practical reasons, the B-70 would have been totally unsuitable as a SAC bomber. And I'm sure that, you know, I guess if you worked at it, you could probably work out a system. But my, my conviction is that getting a weapon out of that airplane at Mach 3, 2,000 miles an hour, and accurately on a target within you know, a thousand feet of a target, a nuclear weapon. And you'd be like, uh, you know, the initial problems would be like hoping to keep the weapon in the same state. You'd have to cover it with ablative material like a missile. Well, I, yeah, I think you know. For one thing, I don't think I don't think it's a practical way of delivering a nuclear weapon. And I question whether ever you derive the kind of accuracies that you need. Maybe you say, well, you just build them bigger so you, you can afford to miss by more. I don't know. Mm. But then again, I think the airplane would have been impossible to maintain in the Strategic Air Command. It would have been a maintenance nightmare. Why so? Oh, it required a fleet of people experienced, supported by engineers on every airplane to just keep our airplane flying uh, on the rare occasions that we did fly, you know, one or two a month and there were always problems, and I guess when they prepared the airplane 
for the museum and they got into the structure, they found out that the structural integrity of the steel honeycomb was really becoming weakened. But you know, presumably once you got further up the learning curve. And well, that might, you know, but there's no doubt in my mind that an operational aircraft would have been major, radically different in many aspects of its construction and probably in its aerodynamic design before it ever went in operational service. We're coming back to the point that I think I raised just now, that it was ahead of its electronics, ahead of oh, the computer age. Yeah, and, uh, you know, here we were in the B-70, roaring about the sky at Mach 3, uh, dependent upon one airborne TACAN unit. Do you know what a TACAN unit? One to navigate us by. Of course, we, you know, that just gives a general sense of which state we were in, or over, I should say. We depended pretty much on radar. You had no national platforms? No, not on the. Now, Airplane 2, and certainly in avionics, it's airplane. The most interesting aircraft of all would have been number three if it ever built it, because it would have had a weapon system in it. You know, it would have been not like a number three B1. And that would have been a fascinating challenge. I think you could have. You'd still be playing with it. Probably not doing much better than you were then initially either. An aviator, I think, who's been in the military for most of his life, develops, actually he's also been in flight tests, I think a certain sense of what's, what's going to be good in the field and what isn't. And the B-70 you just knew would never make it in the field. Conversely, as you, as you knew, the B-1 was the right answer. You know, people would have maintained it, operated it, you know, much better than they're doing with the B-52, you know, after these many years. But you knew the B-70 wasn't going to do it. Because you had these notorious leaks, didn't you, and you oh. used to count the drips, and if it was over a certain number, you wouldn't fly, is that Absolutely. true? Absolutely. I've seen the fuel just running off that airplane, and I said, well, it's far enough away from the engines, let's go. <laughs> because the answer was, well, we didn't know we had this leak till we just filled up, filled it up with all this fuel, now we're going to have to defuel like that, you know, you want to fly in three weeks from now? That was the alternative. Can I just um, raise two final questions, because I don't want to take up um, too much of your time. Uh, the first is, um, did you actually check out the principle of compression lift? Was, was that, in fact, a, a viable theory? Did it Again, get you to a higher altitude than it, you would have done without well, it? Did it get you to a higher L over D, really? That was the whole, right? That was the whole idea. Um, I think the answer to that is a qualified yes, and the qualification will be depending upon whether you talk to North American Rockwell or you talk about talk to NASA or the Air Force. I think we definitely proved that the theory worked. I don't think they realized from it as much as they'd hoped. It wasn't quite as efficient as they'd hoped it would be. And I use that kind of a term to describe it because I think if you talked to North America and they were euphoric about it, and I think you can get down to the final results and looking at uh, what we got at NASA people, NASA engineers, and if you ever talked to a guy named Bill Andrews, it would be worthwhile you're do doing so. And, uh, I think he might give you a different answer. The final thing I just wanted to ask you is, is uh, how did you find, by comparison, flying the B-58? What sort of a, an aircraft was it? I had the feeling that the B-58 was made for me. It was one of those feelings, and I know a lot of people didn't like it. But I got more, much more pleasure out of flying the B-58 than the B-70. 
70 was hard work. It was much more of a challenge, don't misunderstand me. But I always had the feeling that they had me in mind when they designed the B-58. Uh, I felt comfortable in it. I thought it was an excellent airplane. Of course, by the time I got into it, a lot of those very early and tough growing pains had been gone through, had gone away, been cured. So I was flying a pretty fine configuration of the B-58. When you say growing pains, were those drag problems that they had to be? Not so much drag problems, but it too was ahead of its time. And when you go back to the 1950s when that airplane first flew, and flight control system-wise technology, we didn't appreciate the requirements for redundancy, for authorities of trim systems, and for uh, some of the aerodynamic problems at high Mach numbers. And we learned them the hard way in the B-58. What were the aerodynamic problems with high, high mark numbers, principally? Well, of course, one of the most famous ones was uh, the complementary yaw that you got in roll at high Mach number because of the uh, aerodynamic pressures on, on each side of the vertical fin affected by the up and down going elevons which proved that the rudder elevon in interconnect was exactly opposite and that the air loads on the tail were monstrously greater than had been predicted or ever measured before. Is this a form of inertial coupling if you heard on the F-100? No, 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 not at all, not at all. Because usually the uh, aircraft start with two shorter tails and you have to go building them up until you get the right kind of um, in fact, stability uh, configuration. It's, uh, it's, it's because Inertial coupling generally gives you an adverse yaw with the roll, where you convert angle of attack to side slip. In this case, the rolling moment was in the exact opposite direction. The yawing moment was in the exact opposite direction of that you that you would expect from inertial coupling. And it was a practical fighting aircraft. Oh yes, B-58 could do its mission. It, you know, uh, it didn't have the capability of the B-1 by a wide margin. But as an interim airplane, uh, you know, would put, uh, and we put, say, turbofans to increase its range uh, and done much to its avionics, updated, because it still represented 1950 technology, didn't it? Uh, uh, it had no question in my mind, you know, it's anybody who, anybody who thinks a B-52 can get through can, can do a job, uh, has to certainly recognize that the B-58 by far would do a better job. When you think how long the B-52's been in the service, it's amazing how short the B-58 was, was operational. Well, that, I think, was a story unto itself, and I think that decision was 90% political and 10% technical, and I think that's witnessed by the effort that SAC made, however abortive, to put the airplane back in production about a year after it had been out of production. Just one question I noted here, going, just jumping back to the B-70, what, what sort of um, uh, trim system did you have? Were you pumping fuel backwards and forwards like on Concorde? Or? Uh, the answer to that is absolutely. Uh, we, we transferred fuel about, but not, not like uh, Concorde in the sense that uh, the canard gave us a much different aerodynamic situation than, say, Concorde 
in reducing trim drag. It was a different approach to reducing trim drag. Uh, but yes, we did use fuel to go to, you know, we could, uh, we could live with much further aft CGs, supersonic, so you could keep fuel back there and uh, get rid of a lot of that trim drag.